Amen. God is good all the time, and every Sunday is Resurrection Sunday. In fact, uh, first service, we had two people be baptized. I know Janet mentioned this, Carol Swanson and Aspen, and, and if you think about it, baptism is all about the resurrection. We're, we're declaring that Jesus died and he, he rose again, and we're identifying with him in that. In fact, the, the book of Matthew tells us at the very end where Jesus, after the resurrection, is getting ready to go back into heaven, and he's said, I'm coming back one day, but until that day comes, he said, go into all the world and make disciples, baptizing them in the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. And uh, that's what we call the Great Commission. And I think, uh, is Chuck, Chuck and Lisa Dodd here? You guys here? Okay. So the, the, the reality that God has called us to go to people all over the world. I know Chuck and Lisa are in Kansas City. There's people this morning all over the world going to different people groups, sharing uh, the message of Jesus with people who need to hear that and making disciples. As we go through the Sermon on the Mount, that's what we're, we're after here at Rimrock Church. We, we believe that God has called the church to be a disciple-making church. And that's where it says in the Great Commission, baptizing them, teaching them to obey everything that I have taught, that I have said. And so the Sermon on the Mount is where we believe Jesus is teaching us about the transformation of his work, his kingdom in our hearts, in our lives. And so that's uh, why we're going through the Sermon on the Mount. We believe here at Rimrock that our vision is to be a community being transformed by Jesus Christ. And that's what we long for. Would you join me in praying? Lord, thank you for your word. Pray that, Lord, as we open the Sermon on the Mount, that God, you would get a hold of each of us in unique and special ways as only your Holy Spirit can, but help us to see the vision of the, the goodness and the excellency and the beauty of what you are offering to us this morning. In Jesus' name, amen. How many of you guys struggle with communicating? I do. <laughs> and the more I have to uh, communicate as far as role, the more I realize how, how difficult it is to transfer meaning. Um, um, and so, you know, language is a beautiful thing. In fact, if anything points to the existence of God, I think it's, it's language. It's, it's, uh, it's incredible that we can talk. Um, but even with that, we have a hard time sometimes communicating this. Uh, and we can say one thing, but the, the idea can change um, depending on how people hear it. So this past week, I was visiting with a couple of guys in the Air Force who live on the Air Force base. And, uh, and I found out one of the guys had served in Korea. And uh, so I was asking him about that experience. And, uh, and, and there was three of us. And I asked him, uh, so did you pick up any Korean while you were there? And his response was, I'm married and I have a family. <laughs> and, and the other guy said, I think he's talking about the language. <laughs> oh, <laughs> I was. It's hard to communicate. <laughs> so we can laugh about that. But Jesus, Jesus wants to communicate clearly to us. And he has just outlined the, the blessed life, the invitation to the kingdom. He said, repent, change your thinking because the kingdom of God is at hand, it's near. 
And then he begins to teach us about this kingdom. And here's the good news. This kingdom is all about blessing. He came to bring a message of blessing. His intention was to bring blessing to the world and to our lives. And so he begins to teach us about the kingdom and he begins to say, blessed. And he, op- he opens the door to anyone, everyone who would listen and become a disciple of Jesus. And remember, we said there were two groups. There was the crowd who were interested in Jesus but hadn't gone all in with them. And then there were the disciples. And, and here Jesus is talking to the disciples that this is open to anyone who would come and receive the blessings that I offer. Even if you're poor in spirit, even if you mourn, even if you're meek, Jesus offers blessing. And that's good news. But he's also setting the stage to understand the kingdom and its righteousness and what it means to be part of God's kingdom. And so he's not only inviting, but he's also forming us into the values and the ways of God, the ways of Jesus. And we begin to understand that the kingdom has to do with the presence of Jesus in our lives as we begin to live with him and to begin transformed by him. And as we've gone through the Beatitudes, my prayer, and I think what's so important is that we, our hearts are captured by the goodness of the life that God has for us. Even though it's so different from the culture, the world around us, that that our hearts would be drawn to, to the blessing and the goodness, that there is true satisfaction, there is true fulfillment, there is true success when we give our lives to Jesus, when we begin to understand his ways, his truth, his goodness in our lives. It's the good life, and it's his invitation to us. Last week on Easter Sunday, we looked at the looked at the question of why were we created? Why are we here? What is the meaning of life? And Jesus addresses that in verses 13 through 16, where the invitation to the blessed life is an invitation to understand what it truly means to be human. Why were we created? And he tells us in two words, in two things, that we were created to do good to bring goodness to the world, and second, to bring glory to our Father, that this life isn't all about us, that we were made to be in relationship with God. And he used two illustrations, salt and light, (laughs) essential things for life, and speak to the power of what God has made us to be in this world. And so now we come to verses 17 through 20, and I'd like to ask you to stand in in reverence to, to God's word as we read this together this morning. Matthew chapter five, verse 17. Do not think I've come to abolish the law or the prophets. I have not come to abolish them, but to fulfill them. For truly, I tell you, until heaven and earth disappear, Not the smallest letter, not the least stroke of the pen will by any means disappear from the law until everything is accomplished. Therefore, if anyone who sets aside one of the least of these commands and teaches others accordingly will be called least in the kingdom of heaven. But whoever practices and teaches these commands will be called great in the kingdom of heaven. For I tell you that unless your righteousness surpasses that of the Pharisee and the teacher of the law, you will certainly not enter the kingdom of heaven. You may be seated.
So we could get the wrong idea based on the radical, beautiful, good news of the blessing of the kingdom. And Jesus wants to bring clarity. He wants to bring understanding. And this is the pivotal passage to understanding the rest of the sermon because over the next months we're going to be addressing some of the the most profound issues that we face as human beings. We're going to be looking at the issue of anger, our, our sexuality, our relationships, the marriage relationship, looking at our words and our relationship with others in the world and how we respond in difficult circumstances. So these are, these are things all of us deal with in life and Jesus is going to talk about the very practical reality of living in this world and how do we live as salt and light how do we live as children of God in a world that is abandoned or run away from God and so this passage is crucial to understand there's two parts that we're going to look at because Jesus kind of goes back and forth each verse there's two parts here there's the first part where Jesus says do not think Meaning, don't get the wrong idea here. Think this way, not this way. So he says, do not think. And then he says, I tell you. And you see that with each verse, 17, 18, 19, 20. Each verse has a do not think part and I tell you part. And so we're going to look at those back and forth. First, I want to look at do not think. Do not think. Three things that Jesus wants to make absolutely clear to us. First of all, Jesus does not abolish the law or the prophets. Verse 17, do not think I have come to abolish the law or the prophets. And this is important. Because of what Jesus is presenting, some people could have had the idea that Jesus was doing away with everything God had revealed in the Old Testament. The law refers to the first five books of the Old Testament and the prophets refers to all the other writings of, of the prophets and the other writers who wrote the Old Testament. And Jesus wants to make absolutely clear, he has not come to do away with what God has revealed. Rather, he has come to be part, to fulfill, to complete the story that God is writing in human history. And he has revealed himself. And so he wants to make absolutely clear He's not doing away with the law or the prophets. The second thing he wants to make absolutely clear is that the righteousness of the law will not disappear. And this is so important. This is so important because so many times as Christians, we can begin to think that the New Testament is somehow more important than the Old Testament. But Jesus wants to make very clear that the authority and the inspiration of Scripture is both what God has revealed and the law and the prophets, as well as what he is revealing to us through his life and ministry in the Gospels. And so many of us can think that the God of the Old Testament is somehow different from who God is in the New Testament. And this is false. <laughs> Jesus wants to make very clear that God has the same yesterday, today, and forever. How many of us uh, have read Psalm 119. <laughs> it's the longest chapter in the Bible. And I thought about reading the whole thing to you this morning, but I won't, I won't do that. But I do want to read a few verses for you because I think this is what Jesus is after. He doesn't want to 
remove our love or, under, or our affection for his law. Rather, he wants us to see the value and the importance of the law in our lives, in our worlds. In Psalm 119, verses 41 through 48, it says, may your unfailing love come to me, Lord, your salvation according to your promise. Then I can answer anyone who taunts me, for I trust in your word. I trust in your word. We have to ask ourselves, is our trust in God's word this morning? Never take your word of truth from my mouth, for I've put my hope in your laws. I will always obey your law forever and ever. I will walk about in freedom, for I have sought your precepts. Do you see that there's a connection between the law and freedom? I will walk, and I've sought about your precepts. I will speak of your statutes before kings, and I will not be put to shame, for I delight in your commands because I love them. I reach out for your commands, which I love, that I may meditate on your decrees. What a beautiful invitation that I think Jesus is getting at here when he says, do not think that the law will disappear. In fact, he goes on to say, even the smallest stroke, even the smallest dot. In the Hebrew language, there were little dots that brought about meaning to different words. And he's saying, not even one of those will be changed or removed. And so we see the value of God's word. We see the value of God's law. So Jesus says, do not think that I'm doing away with that. And here's the last thing that I think Jesus is telling us not to think. He's saying, do not think that the righteousness of the Pharisee or the teacher of the law is God's righteousness. And this is crucial. <laughs> the rest of the sermon, Jesus is gonna compare the righteousness of the Pharisee and the teacher of the law and the righteousness of God. This is the most important point for the rest of the sermon in understanding it. So what is the righteousness of the Pharisee and the teacher of the law? And we're going to be exploring that over the next months, but I want to, I want to start this morning by giving you three things that I believe the Bible tells us about the righteousness of the Pharisee. Because we're not to follow that path. We're not to follow that example. Now, here's the reality. All of us are Pharisees, <laughs> and there's no one who's exempt, because when we begin to talk about these things, one of the first things we do as human beings is we start thinking about someone else, <laughs> right? We start thinking, oh, that person. You've missed the point if you start to do that. The reality is all of us, I include myself in this, all of us have this tendency towards the righteousness of the Pharisee. This is the human condition. This is what Jesus came to rescue us from. This is part of our transformation, part of our salvation as he is inviting us into a new way of being, a new way of being right, of living in the goodness and truth. And so the point here isn't to identify others, but the point is to realize this tendency in our own lives and to choose to walk away from that kind of righteousness and receive the righteousness of Jesus. So what is the righteousness of the Pharisee and the teacher of the law? First, it's external. It's external. It does not reflect the heart, the will, or the being of the person. Remember, what Jesus is addressing most importantly in the Sermon on the Mount is who we are, who you are, who I am, our, our very nature, our, every, our very being, about our hearts. 
But the righteousness of the Pharisee and the teacher of the law doesn't focus on that. It only focuses on the external. It only focuses on what we have on the outside. And this is why behavior modification is so opposed to what Jesus is talking about. Because what we can do in our own is try to change little behaviors, but that's not what God's after. He's after our hearts. He's after who we are. And then our behavior comes from that. And so, as I was thinking about an example of this in our culture today, um, I thought of a story that's been kind of circulating the last few months about um, college admissions. And you've maybe read the headlines about the scandal of parents who were paying bribes and trying to get their kids into certain colleges. Now, that whole situation speaks to values in our culture, right, that are very different from the values Jesus is talking about in the Sermon on the Mount. Because that whole situation speaks of success, fulfillment, satisfaction based on certain things. Money, fame, certain kind of college, certain kind of education. And Jesus is talking about a way of being, a way of being human that doesn't rely on our value coming from those kind of things. But what's interesting about that whole situation is on the outside, everything looks good, <laughs> right? Everything looked successful. Everything looked right. And even in the parents' own minds, they were doing what was right and best for their kids. But as that situation unfolded and as it, the inside got exposed, what was revealed? Greed and cheating and all kinds of of, of terrible behavior that reflected very differently on the hearts of those involved. Now, I don't share that story to point our fingers at someone else, but just to show us and help us see the reality of the righteousness of the Pharisee and teacher of law that is so ingrained that it's about performance or outward looking success or fulfillment when the reality of the heart is so different. So number one, the righteousness of the Pharisees is external. Second, it's self-justified and self-motivated. It's self-justified and self-motivated. It's uh, interesting when you talk to people who are in a conflict or have a disagreement or have done something painful or hurtful to someone else. Um, they've always and almost always explained it as being right in their own mind. <laughs> and so even if everyone else sees what they've done is wrong, that in their own mind, they're right. <laughs> they've done something good or they've justified themselves. And this is a danger for all of us. We can begin to think that our perception, our reality is good and right and it can be so distorted and so wrong. And so this is the righteousness of the Pharisee. It's self-justified, self-motivated. Many times guilt and shame and fear become motivations for what we do. The third part of the righteousness of a Pharisee is it always compares itself to others. Jesus told a story about two guys praying and one was a Pharisee and he was standing there saying, God, thank you for all the good things that I've done and thank you that I'm not like this other guy who's a tax collector. <laughs> He, he thought he was doing pretty good compared to that other guy. But Jesus said the other person only looked down and he beat his chest and said, God, forgive me because I'm a sinner. 
And Jesus said it was that person who was justified that day. Very different. One was self-justifying and comparing. The other was looking to God and realized his need before God. And so the Pharisee not only compares himself or herself to someone and thinks that they're doing good, pride, but there's another side to this where it can cause condemnation. And I tell you, social media has brought this to light where you go to Facebook or, or Instagram, you start looking at others and it looks like their life is beautiful and good and you look at your own life and you think, man, you start condemning yourself. And, and this, this is the righteousness of a Pharisee as well. It's self-condemning and self-judging. And we, we tend to compare our insides with the outside of others. <laughs> and, and that's not reality. But this is the danger that Jesus is warning us against. This is the contrast that he's trying to help us to see. So let's look at what Jesus does tell us. So he says, do not think. But then he says, I tell you. Each verse, he says, I tell you. He says, I've not come to abolish, but I've come to fulfill. He's come to fulfill what God has revealed in the Old Testament. That's why when we go to a book like Jonah in the Old Testament, what do we see? We see Jesus. <laughs> we see the grace of God. We see the work of God leading us to Jesus and what he's accomplished for us. And so it changes how we see the law and the prophets. We see the work of God, the story of God throughout the entire scripture. Second, we see Jesus saying that he affirms the practice and the teaching of the law. He's talking about the righteousness of God. In fact, I think what's so important is when we read Paul in Romans, which is such an important book and that we have gone through Romans together as a church, I see in Paul an intense study of what Jesus said and what Jesus did. Paul knew the words of Jesus. He knew the Sermon on the Mount. And what does he tell us in Romans chapter 1, verse 17? He tells us that the gospel is ultimately about righteousness, that a righteousness is revealed from God, and it's from faith from first to last. And, and, and this is the whole theme of the, the book of Romans, is what is the life that we have in Jesus, and what is that life look like? What does that mean? And it's based on the law and what God has revealed. And that's why Jesus affirms the righteousness of God in the law and in the prophets. It's it's our, tr and, and, if, and if you look at Paul, he understands that Jesus is ultimately talking about faith and he's talking about the grace of God. Thirdly, what does Jesus tell us? He tells us that the righteousness of the kingdom surpasses or exceeds that of the Pharisee, meaning it's, it's completely different from the righteousness of the Pharisee. Let's talk a little bit about that. Because this is, the, this is the turning point in the whole sermon. From here on out, Jesus is going to compare righteousness of the Pharisee with God's righteousness. So we have to understand this. We have to grapple with this reality that God wants to do in our hearts and our lives. Three things. The righteousness of the kingdom is internal. So if the righteousness of the Pharisee is external, the righteousness of the kingdom is internal. It's about our hearts. It's about our wills. It's about who we are in our inner being. 
As I was thinking about the college scandal, another story came to my mind that had to do with college. Um, how many of you have heard of a man named Samuel Morris? Anyone know? There's a few names. Okay, a few hands. Okay, if you don't know about Samuel Morris, I encourage you this week, go back and read about this guy. His story is amazing. He was a, a, a boy living in Africa, what is currently today Liberia. And uh, he was a son of a chief and there was some conflict and he ended up getting separated from his people. And, and he came across a woman who shared Jesus with him. And he gave his life to Christ. And his life was, was completely, radically transformed by Jesus. He found out that this woman had gone to a college called Taylor University in Indiana. And he decided he was going to go and get trained so he could go back to Africa and share Jesus with his people. But he wanted to understand the scriptures. And so uh, he had this idea he was going to go to Indiana. <laughs> and uh, he didn't have any money but he boarded a ship and he agreed to work his way across the ocean. And he was, he was so in love with Jesus that everything he did reflected what we're talking about this morning about the righteousness of God. And on that rough and tumble ship, he brought many of the sailors and the captain to Jesus <laughs> on that trip. And then he ended up in Indiana and he came to Taylor University, a place that was in decline. It was, they were ready to shut their doors. They didn't have enough money. Their spiritual uh, uh, situation was not good. It, it was, a, it was a, a very bad situation. And he shows up with no money, with nothing. And he says, I want to study God's word. And so they, they allowed him in. And an amazing thing happened. As he was on campus, the light of Jesus began to shine through him and revival broke out and he began to preach and share and teach others about Jesus and students came to Christ and pretty soon people were coming from all over the whole region thousands and thousands of people came to hear Samuel Morris and money was raised and the university was saved and and today you can go on to Taylor University's campus and see buildings that were named after him and I think about that story and I think what did Samuel Morris have? He didn't have money, he didn't have fame, he didn't have everything this world values, but he had Jesus. <laughs> and the power of the kingdom was present, was working through him in his heart, in his life, in his being, and it had power and impact on everyone around him. That's what Jesus is talking about when he talks about the righteousness of the kingdom. John Flavel in the 1600s wrote, the heart of man is his worst part before it is regenerated, but it's the best part afterwards. It is the seat of principles and the foundation of all actions. The eye of God and the eye of the Christian ought to be principally fixed upon it. That's what, that's what the Sermon on the Mount is about. It's about our hearts. The greatest difficulty in conversion is to win the heart to God. And the greatest difficulty after conversion is to keep the heart with God. And that's what Jesus is inviting us to. He's inviting us to the righteousness with God, the presence of God, the power of God, the life of God in us. Secondly, the righteousness of the kingdom is God justified and is God glorifying. So if the righteousness of the Pharisee is all about self-justification, is all about 
uh, self-glory. That's why we call it self-righteousness. What Jesus is inviting us is into the kind of righteousness that isn't about us. It's about God and his glory. We become, we become God-centered people. And we become focused on him. And we understand that all life, all meaning, all purpose is found in him. And we no longer have to explain away our lives. We abandon and surrender ourselves to God's life. And we receive the justification that he gives us. This is the the crux of the message of the cross, is it not? (laughs) That God made a way for us to be made righteous, to justify us. Thirdly, the righteousness of God does no longer do we compare ourselves to others, rather we look to God and we see our need and we see the love and the goodness and the beauty and the grace of God. And so like that tax collector who couldn't look up, he only saw his need before God and it says that he was justified that day because God is gracious, he is compassionate, he is kind. And what does this produce in our lives? Instead of pride and condemnation, what do we have? Humility, we have joy, and we have gratitude. We become grateful people because we understand what God has given us, what he has done for us. And we understand grace and we understand salvation. Do you see the contrast? Righteousness of the Pharisee versus the righteousness of God. So as the worship team comes up to close us, I wanna, I wanna make one last point here with us. And this is so important. We have to understand what true righteousness is and we have to understand what grace is. And you say, Ben, I don't see the word grace in verse 17 through 20. <laughs> well, Paul wrote, Paul wrote Romans reading this very same passage and he saw grace. And I think grace is here. It's so evident here. But we have to understand what grace means. When Paul wrote in Ephesians 2, he said, but because of his great love for us, God who is rich in mercy, made us alive with Christ. Even when we were dead in transgressions, it is by grace you have been saved. And God raised us up with Christ and he seated us with him in the heavenly realms in Christ Jesus in order that in the coming ages he might show the incomparable riches. Do you see that? What this world says is rich is nothing compared to the richness that God has for us. Expressed and his kindness to us in Christ Jesus. For it is by grace that you have been saved. You have been saved by grace through faith. And this is not of yourselves, it is the gift of God, not by works, so that no one can boast. For we are God's handiwork. And th- this, this is, sounds a lot like the words of Jesus in the Sermon of the Mount. It's created in Christ Jesus to do what? To do good works, salt, light, which God prepared in advance for us to do. So hold on to this reality that God is working in our lives to bring about transformation so that we are no longer marked by the righteousness of the Pharisee. Rather, we are marked by the righteousness of God. And this righteousness is one of grace. And so we are no longer opposed to the law. Rather, the law and grace work together. Rather, the contrast is to legalism. We no longer need the law for self-justification. Rather, we see the law as what God is doing 
in our lives of defining what is true and good and right. This is like the rudder on a ship. This, this steers us in the right direction towards God and his reality. Also, grace is not opposed to effort. It is opposed to self-reliance. This righteousness from God makes us dependent on the power of God that's available for us. This is the wind in the sails. So if you're on a ship, you want a rudder and you want wind because <laughs> wind makes you go. And that's what grace is. It's God's powerful action on our behalf to do what we could not do on ourselves. And as we go through the rest of the Sermon on the Mount, we're gonna come across the reality of what God wants to do in our lives and we're gonna say, how is it possible? <laughs> how can I do this? But the reality is it's possible because of the grace of God. The righteousness and the grace of God is available to us with his presence. And this is the transformation of God. This is why God made us. This is what it means to be human. It's, we're made to be like Jesus. We'll offer this